Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to learn more about the Mass and trying to understand what it is and uh, how to better enter into these sacred mysteries. Um, this is a, a joy of mine to share with you um, the things that I have learned about the Mass and um, teach you how to understand it better and what's going on with the celebration. So, um, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask you to open all our hearts and minds that we may go deeper into the mystery of the celebration of the Mass. We ask you to be with us during this time and help us to seek you in the midst of this session. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that, uh, that I like to talk about is what is the Mass? What is it in general? Uh, because that's really our starting point. What's it for? Why do we have it? Uh, if we can understand that, then the rest of the Mass makes more sense. So it's a question I actually like to ask a bunch of grade schoolers, and I found that I've never cared for them. And I would ask them about the Mass. What is it? sacrifice of Christ for us in the celebration. And so because that is what makes Mass unique, that's what makes Mass what it is, that's what it's important for us to focus on and to emphasize when we celebrate Mass. Sometimes we do lots of things in our Mass, and sometimes we can kind of lose track of what's the point of it all. If we wanted to, we could have um, other kinds of prayer services or music and scripture. But what makes Mass unique is that sacrifice. The fact that Jesus is making himself present at the altar. And when we think about that, we might wonder, well, who is the Mass for? If that's what it is, who is it for? And a lot of people would probably guess that the Mass is for the people. But actually, in the Mass, we say quite clearly who it's for and how this works. Um, I'll say the priest part, and if you remember it, you can go ahead and say the part of the people. Pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. How often do we pay attention to these words? 
Notice I just said, my sacrifice and yours. What is domestic? It's a sacrifice. Okay, so in the mass itself, we have it right there, sacrifice. And it says it in many other places too, but this is where I'm going to emphasize. But notice I said, my sacrifice and yours. I'll get back to that in a moment. In your response, you said, for the praise and glory of his name. Whose name? God's name. So the Mass is to glorify God, first and foremost, primarily, above all else. That's what it's for. That's who it's for. It's for God. Secondarily, for our good and good of all the church. This is consistent with church teaching. This is consistent with what Jesus says. What is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God, love your heart, love your strength, love your soul. And the second is like, the less important is like, to love your neighbor as yourself. God first, then us. The same is true with the celebration of the Mass. God first, and then us. And so, when we have the sacrifice, we are doing this for God, first and foremost, and then for ourselves, for the graces that God will give us from it, and the blessings that we will receive. But I want to circle back. My sacrifice and yours. As a ministerial priest, the sacrifice that I offer is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the sacrifice at the altar. It's Jesus becoming present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But what's your sacrifice? As someone who's baptized, you are priest as well. Not a ministerial priest like I am because of my ordination to say the priesthood, but you are a priest as well because of your baptism. And you are members of the mystical body of Christ that is the church. So if Christ the head is offering his sacrifice, the body is to offer sacrifice too. You're supposed to be offering something everyone has to go to as well. What is it that you offer? Some of you might remember I mentioned it in the previous homily. Uh, what you offer is Christ alive within you. What you offer is all your joys, all your sorrows, all the, the good things, all the bad things, all your friends, all your family members, all your memories, all that you are, all that you have. You offer it to God in union along with the offering that's taking place at the altar of Jesus in the Eucharist, which is our crucified Lord, being offered to the Heavenly Father. And that sacrifice of Christ on the cross was to make up for all the sins of all humanity for all time. And so, God, who is outside of time, who created time, made it so that we can take what happened before and make it present now. So that we can have the grace from what happened before applied to us now, here on earth, in the midst of our community, where we glorify God first and foremost, and we receive His blessings. This is what the Mass is really all about, and what it's for, and who it's for. And so this goes to, then, how do we participate? Well, the primary way of participation is offering more sacrifice. If you come to Mass and you, and you unite your heart and your mind in all of those things to what's happening at the altar, then you are participating well and in the most important way in Mass. Sometimes it's hard at Mass. Sometimes we just say the words that we always say when we don't even know what we're saying. I mean, take it, for example, the words that we just said. How often do we realize that we said... Um, my sacrifice and yours, what's your sacrifice? For, for the glory of his name, and then for our good. A lot of times, I know when I first started coming to Mass after being away for a while, I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't even hear the responses, so I didn't know them. And I was just kind of walking, I'd sit in the back, watch what everybody else was doing, and I'd kind of imitate that, kind of pretend like I was hoping no one was watching. But 
That's what we ought to be doing, is offering our sacrifice, offering all of that to the Lord in union with our Lord being offered in the Eucharist. So that's how we participate. But where does the mass come from? How do we get it? Well, Jesus gave it to us. If we look at all of Scripture, there's only one place that He gives us a direct order of what we are to do to remember. And we hear it in the Mass. At the end of the consecration, we hear, do this in memory of me. Do what? The Mass, the consecration. This is how Jesus tells us that we are to remember Him. This is how we are to celebrate Him. This is how we are to connect with Him. In the celebration of the Mass, the consecration, that moment of the sacrifice being made present to us. True, it's through sacramental signs. But He makes Himself available to us. He makes this event of the past present to us now. He tells us, do this and not bring it This is how we get His graces. This is how we get His blessings. This is how we show our joy, our thanks for all that He's done for us. This is how we glorify Him. This is what He told us to do. I mean, imagine, for example, if you were just at home and a child, you asked them to do something, and they did something else, wasn't what you asked for. Probably you got to that they did something. But if it wasn't what you asked for, you're not going to be as happy as if, if they actually did what what you ask them to do, right? And so the same is true with God. He tells us what He wants us to do. He even tells us how often He wants us to do it. Every Sunday, every holy day of obligation. Why? God only tells us to do the things that are truly good for us, the things that benefit us. When we glorify God, when we keep Him first, then He showers us with His blessings, and we become the best that we can possibly be. And we become the best we can be because of our union with God. Because of our relationship with Him. And so, there's lots of things that can be said about the Mass. There's lots of things that can be said about the celebration. Um, The Mass is based on Holy Scripture. Almost everything that's said in the celebration of the Mass is either a direct quote, a paraphrase, or an allusion to or inspired by Sacred Scripture. And there's numerous books that talk about these things. I just read a handful of them. Um, there's the Biblical Walk Through the Mass by Edward Strahd. There's the Biblical Basis for the Universe by John Salza. There's the Mass and Sacred Scripture by uh, the Dynamic Deacon, Deacon Carol Burke Sivers. Uh, one of the things I like about this book is that it's very thin. But he also goes straight to the point and just tells you exactly where the different things come from. Uh, and scripture is sometimes the same phrase is used in more than one location. So he, he references this different thing. So for example, we want to know where did we get the words for the sign of the cross at the very beginning, from Matthew 28, verse 29. What about the response Amen? That appears many times in Sacred Scripture. But Uh, 
to go deeper into celebration of the Mass. How do we know what we're supposed to do during the Mass, the different parts of the Mass? We have what's called the Roman Missal. A lot of servers, they call it the book, because it's the book that the priest uses to pray. And so, when the priest says, let us pray at Mass, uh, the way I train servers is that they didn't already get the book. When they hear, let us pray, it means bring me the book. <laughs> and sometimes they just refer to the Roman Missal as the book. But inside of it, it tells us what we're supposed to say. I don't know how well you can see it from there, but it has some things in red and some things in black. The red gives us instructions so that we know what we're doing. The black tells us what we're supposed to say. So the priest knows how to celebrate Mass that way. A lot of it is the same. So a lot of times, you'll see a priest just saying these things or doing the actions from memory uh, because it's very repetitive in that regard. At the front of the Roman Missal, uh, there's also what's called the general instruction of the Roman Missal. Affectionately referred to as the journal. G-I-R-M. General instruction of the Roman Missal. So it tells us what we're supposed to say and do in the Missal itself, but then this also tells us the things that aren't explicitly listed in the Missal. So these instructions tell us where to understand what we're supposed to be doing here in how we are supposed to celebrate Mass. And so with the celebration of the Mass, we're focusing primarily on the sacrifice of Christ made present to us at the altar, but we're also looking at other aspects of the life of Christ. We're also looking at different things throughout the year. Different parts of the year, we emphasize different aspects of Christ's life. We just started the season of Advent where we're focusing on the beginning of Christ's life, his coming. We recall how he came as a human being, but also how he's going to come again in glory. For the season of Advent, uh, the priest typically wears violet. Some people refer to it as purple. This color is the color of penance, the color of prayer. It's also a color of royalty, because we are looking forward to the coming of the king. And so we have violet for the celebration of Advent, but also later on when we have Lent. In fact, the season of Advent is a shorter version of Lent. Uh, Lent had come first and for the liturgical year, and Advent later followed. We also have white, which is a celebration, which is a celebratory color. So for Christmas, for Easter, for other solemnities, the priest wears white. Uh, for special occasions, certain saints, the priest wears white. And white is a color of celebration, a color of purity, a color of joy. And so white is used for those more festive seasons and celebrations. We just got done with uh, celebrating ordinary time. So in ordinary time, the priest wears green. Green is the color of growth. During ordinary time, we are called to grow in our spiritual lives. We are called to go deeper into our relationship with the Lord. So the priest wears green. Now some people may think ordinary time, well, like ordinary sounds pretty boring. But that's, that's not the intention of the name. The intention of the name is that it means order. As in, there's a sequence of things that we're doing. And in ordinary time, we're looking at the teachings of Jesus. So during his three years of ministry, we're looking at what he was doing. Whereas in Advent, we're anticipating his coming as our Lord, coming at Christmas. At Christmas, we're recalling his birth and early times of his infancy. Um, and then we also have later in the year, Lent, where we're recalling Jesus preparing in the desert, preparing for his ministry, and also getting ready for Easter. Easter where we celebrate his resurrection. So we know he went through his passion and death, but that would be meaningless if he didn't raise himself from the dead. Really, anything the Trinity does, they all do together. So it's accurate to say Jesus raised himself from the dead. It's accurate to say the Father raised him from the dead. It's accurate to say the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. 
because all three always work together. So he was raised from the dead. And if it wasn't for that, according to St. Paul, then our faith would be in vain. So Jesus' resurrection is our biggest celebration in the entire year. Sometimes people think Christmas, but that's, that's more because of the way that our, our secular society celebrates these seasons. That Christmas sometimes gets misunderstood and thought to be more important. We can tell that the church doesn't think that way because Christmas season is not very long. Easter season is 50 days. And we spend 40 days preparing for it. Whereas Christmas, Christmas season goes to the baptism of our Lord, which, which is usually around January 6th. So it's not that long for Christmas season. And we only have about four weeks or so leading up to it. So Christmas is very important, don't get me wrong. But Easter is a greater celebration. In the his chasuble. That's what I just showed you, the chasuble. Uh, the chasuble goes back to St. Peter. Whenever he would celebrate Mass, he would celebrate it wearing a chasuble. Um, the chasuble is a vestment, a garment for the poor. Uh, chasuble means house or little house, because a poor person didn't have a house. And so his house he wore on his body, and he went 
uh, to different places, and he brought his house and all of his belongings with him. And that's what we see the apostles doing. They didn't have a place of their own. Like Jesus, who went from place to place, the apostles, when they were sent out, they didn't have a place of their own. And so they just brought everything with them. In the case of St. Peter, he would be wearing his chasuble, um, his little house, when he would celebrate Mass. And since he was the first pope, the first bishop of Rome, and we are the Latin Rite Roman Catholics, we follow his example, and we likewise have a chasuble. Uh, There's a stole that's worn underneath the chasuble. The stole is a sign of authority. God gives the priest the authority to act in his name to serve for the people. And that authority is to be clothed in humility, which is why the chasuble is to be worn on top. So he has the authority, that's what the stole is for, but he's supposed to be humble about it, and that's why he wears the garment of the poor. You might think, well, those look pretty fancy, that doesn't look kind of poor to me. Well, the shape of it is the shape of that for someone who's poor, but the chasuble uh, is also a recognition of Christ, and Peter, as the bishop, was standing in the person of Christ. And so when Peter would wear the chasuble, He's also supposed to be Jesus, and Jesus, we try to glorify him, so we wear fancy vestments, things that would glorify God. So at the same time, we're showing the glory, but also the humility in the design of the garment. Underneath that, um, there is what's called the alb. Alb is a Latin word, it means white. So that's not very fancy of a name, but. The alb is a white garment. If you've been to a baptism, you probably recall that there's a part of the celebration where we talk about the white garment and how that's a symbol of putting on Christ. And the white is a color of purity. When we are baptized, we're going to be completely clean. And so when the priest puts on the alb, it's a reminder of his baptism. There's also what's called the amice. And different albs have different designs. The amice is worn uh, over the shoulders, and it's supposed to cover the collar. Uh, and the idea is the collar is a sign of the priesthood, and the sign of the priesthood is shown in other ways, by wearing the chasuble, for example. So we're not going to show the priesthood when he's wearing the alb in that way. His priesthood is shown in other ways with other vestments. The amice is uh, something that dates back to the Roman Empire. When it's worn over the shoulders on hot days, they flip it over their head and it becomes a hood. Becomes a hood to keep the sun off his head. There's also special prayers that priests pray for each garment. Um, The one for the Amos talks about the helmet of salvation from Ephesians uh, to keep him safe. The priest also wears what's called a cincture. It's a rope around his waist. Um, It's a sign of his chastity. And that's actually also what the fascia, which is what I'm wearing here, looks like belts. It's also what it means, a sign of chastity. Now I'm wearing what's called a cassock. The cassock also goes back to the time of the Roman Empire, when robes were common. Um, It's black, because black was the, the color of the common folk. different vestments to help us understand what's going on and and how the celebration works. Sometimes the priest would wear what's called a surplice, which is a shorter version of the alb, but it means the same thing. So some of you might recall a long time ago in our parish and other parishes, they still do this, uh, where the surplice is worn over the cassock by the servers. So the servers would wear the cassock, the black garment, and then they would have the surplice over. But if you've ever seen that before, you would notice 
that the servers would not be wearing the collar because they're not ordained. So they're not bound by obedience to the bishop the same way that the priest or the deacon is. Here in our parish, for our servers to have their own collar, um, the idea being the same, the obvious sign of one's baptism and the purity of that baptism in the life of Christ's life in that person from the baptism. And then, likewise, the servers also have a sanction to wear around their waist as a sign of chastity. So, those are generally a number of the vestments. I guess I did skip one. It's called the coat. Um, and the coat was worn during certain celebrations. Uh, this particular stool is what I got from my graduation from our seminary. Uh, so the seminary gave us a gift. Uh, it goes pretty well with the parish's coat. So I just had to keep it with it. I, I couldn't find a stool for the coat itself, so I just was using this one. But the coat was basically like a cape for liturgical celebrations. Um, a priest or deacon can wear it during their baptism, uh, or they can wear it uh, at other times, especially when we're having benediction. Uh, a priest can wear benediction, meaning blessings, the conclusion of the celebration of adoration where Jesus is out in monsters. Um, so a priest and a deacon could wear a coat during some of those celebrations uh, if he wanted to, but it's not absolutely required. The deacon, when he wears his stole, he wears it a little differently than a priest. So the priest wears it down the front, but a priest, but a deacon wears it on the side. And so when I was first ordained, um, before my ordination, my grandmother had made these vestments for me. She had a little chain uh, that connected the bottom part of the stole together, so that I could wear it as a deacon. And then when I became a priest, I just removed the chain. So the priest uses different vessels and things during the celebration of the Mass. There are different things that are used at the altar, different things that the servers bring up with them. Um, I always tell the servers to bring up my child's first. Uh, and there's multiple reasons for that. One of them is that uh, the child's, as you can see, has multiple things on it. And so uh, I always tell them to use two hands. I had a server in my first church who didn't use two hands. And then the So the pall, from a practical standpoint, 
covers the chalice at different times to prevent bugs from coming in. But from a theological standpoint, uh, the pall is something that covers those who have died. So if you think about a funeral and you have the casket, a pall is put over the garment, a large cloth is placed that covers the entire casket uh, because that person died. And so we're recalling how Christ died, and the pall is placed over him. We also have what are called corporals. Corporal means body. The corporal is something that, that unfolds, and the whole purpose of the corporal is we put the other vessels on it. If any particles, any crumbs of Jesus would be present in the Eucharist should fall, it would land on the corporal and not be somewhere else. Uh, because we believe that Jesus is truly present, body, soul, and divinity, we also believe that even the tiniest particle is God. And so we don't want to disrespect our Lord, we want to reverence Him. So should any particle fall, we want it to fall on the corporal, so that that particle of His body can be taken with and not left behind on the altar. We also have what's called the Sororium. It's what holds the different posts. So you probably recall people bringing up the gifts. They would usually bring up the Sororium along with a cruet that's filled with wine. The bigger version that we sometimes use on Sundays, um, that's called a flag or a decanter. And so, uh, Sororium comes from a Latin word that basically just means bowl. But in in English, we still use the Latin words, which is pointing to something that's greater. So chalice is, is also Latin, comes from a Latin word that basically means top. But we still call it chalice because we're pointing to something greater, something different than ordinary use. You probably notice that these vessels are shiny. Um, they're typically coated with a precious metal. And that's because what they contain is precious. Because what they contain is the God of the universe who humbled himself to be present with us in the universe. So we're going to glorify him by surrounding him with precious metals. Now it's not to say that these are like 100% gold or something. Gold is a very soft metal. If they made a child's only on gold, I could probably bend it half the first time it's used. Um, that would be very useful. So it's just coated in it. It's a plating. It's not uh, using that as a base metal. Uh, a different metal is typically used as more, uh, that's stronger, so it's not going to bend or fall apart um, as a result of that. So we have the Zephorium, we have the chalice. Uh, the chalices that are used for the people are sometimes also called communion cups, because that's uh, what we use it for, for the people of God to also receive. Now there's also, you probably recall, the priest washes his hands part way through the Mass, and um, there was a practical reason, and that's because in ancient times, the priest's hands would be buried. And so he's about to touch the God of the universe, uh, make bread to the God of the universe, and it would be important for his hands to be clean. Uh, but now that we have like indoor plumbing and cleaning our hands, it's pretty easy. It usually happens before Mass. But ceremonially, we still have it, uh, because we're also pointing to the sacredness of what's about to happen. That we're getting to this point in the Mass where Jesus is about to come to us in the Eucharist. And so we want the priest to be ready. And he's got a special prayer that he prays when his hands are being washed. Uh, Cleanse me, O Lord, from my iniquities and heal me from my sins. I think it's what. You know, it's a lot easier when I actually celebrate sins. But then I'm feeling like the folks outside of the right parts hard to remember. There was one time I was teaching an RCIA class about confession, and I started to do the act of contrition in my mind, and I'm like, you know, in a confession, it's easier for me to do this. So, likewise, here and now. Uh, so, he washes his hands, but we give the, the bowl a special name, a bottle bowl. And then, even though it's more than a towel, we give it a special name. Um, I'm not entirely sure why we did those names, but we did. Uh, one of the things I've done at previous parishes on special occasions, but I haven't really done here, is to use a 
the objects. Uh, the veil kind of keeps it protected. And it shows that something special is contained within. And so when the veil is used, we would take the, the corporals and we would actually put it in the verse and put the verse on top. Again, it would be the first thing that the servant brings to the priest because the first thing he wants to put down is the corporal and then put the vessels on top of it. So um, there's the veil and the verse, and those can also be used at Mass. It used to be required now as optional, uh, which is the case for lots of things since the Second Vatican Council. Lots of options. Uh, like I mentioned in our prayers that the priest can pray before he puts on his sacred vestments. So those are all optional. They're not required. Um, so uh, some priests choose not to exercise that option. Other priests choose to exercise that option. But we veil things that are sacred. We veil things that are holy. We veil things where God is present or where God does something miraculous. So when we think about the setup of the church, um, we have the tabernacle, the golden box in the center, and that holds the Eucharist, which is truly Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. The first and original way of knowing that he was there was not the sanctuary lamp, the red candle nearby, but it was actually a veil over the tabernacle. The veil was the indication that our Lord was present. The veil indicated that this was sacred, this was holy, that our Lord is there. Um, as time went on, the candle was added, and the veil became optional. But the veil points to sacredness and holiness. God works a miracle in the chalice. He makes wine each in himself. So it's sacred, so it's holy. And so, you have the option of putting a veil over the chalice. You might also notice that sometimes, and this used to be required for God's option, that mass women were wear veils. Why would they do that? Well, because women are sacred. Women are holy. God can perform a miracle in women, but he doesn't do in men. And that's the miracle of new life. The creation of a new human being. A woman is sick. A woman is holy. And so, to show that, she can put on a veil. Also, it's a sign of humility. It used to be required because the hair of a woman is a sign of her glory. It's a sign of her beauty. But we don't want to distract from the celebration of the Mass. We don't want her to show off. And so it used to be required that the men would veil themselves, not only to point to how sacred and holy they are, that God can perform miracles in them, but also as a sign of humility that they're not showing off their glory that is their hair. And that's, it's different for men. Men will show their stature and importance by wearing a hat. But in the presence of God, they remove their hat. Because their hat is a sign of their authority, a sign of their position and their prestige. So in the presence of someone greater, in the presence of the Lord, they humble themselves and remove their hats. Again, these things are practices that are kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, the removing of hats seems to have continued, but women wearing veils, since it's become optional, um, doesn't happen as often. But these signs and symbols have meaning and have purpose. There's reasons for them. And when we understand them, it's easier for us to, to appreciate what's happening, to appreciate what's taking place. So I already started talking about some of the furniture. The tabernacle is front and center because it contains the God of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. And so he should be our focal point. But we also have the altar, the altar of sacrifice. After the tabernacle, the altar is the next most holy thing in the church because that's where Jesus comes. He comes to us at the altar. That's where his sacrifice is made present to us again. Now, before the Second Vatican Council, all the altars were supposed to be made out of marble, or at least coated in marble. And if you look at the uh, tabernacle setting, is generally what we would call those now, but it used to be the high altar of our church, you could see that it has uh, a framing, or, or the framing coated with marble. Um, the marble is a sign of stone, it's a sign of solidity, a sign of steadiness, a uh, firm foundation, it's a sign of Christ, it's a sign of his tomb. 
It's a sign that we can rely upon what we are celebrating. After the Second Vatican Council, uh, the Church wanted to emphasize uh, the fact that this is also the celebration of the First Mass, which is the Last Supper. And so some altars became more table-like. Um, in my opinion, that move kind of lost some of the symbolism when it was stone. Altars also have what's called an altar stone. This used to be required, again, it's no longer required, to try to show that same meaning and purpose of using stone as a sign of the solidity of our faith, the firmness of it. Um, our altar actually does have an altar stone. Um, and it used to be required that every altar would also have relics of a saint in it. Because that goes back all the way to the original Christians and they would celebrate Mass in the catacombs. They would celebrate Mass over the bodies of other Christians as a sign of their union with those who have gone before us in faith. After the Second Vatican Council, that was no longer required. To be completely honest, I don't know if our altar stone has relics in it or not. Usually, if it does, it has a sticker on the back that tells you who those saints are. Um, our altar stone does not have a sticker. It has a spot where the relics will be embedded, but I didn't see a sticker. So I don't know if we have the relics of a saint in our altar stone, in our altar or not. But the altar has all those different kinds of symbols surrounding it. Here we have um, what's called the ambo. Sometimes people call it a pulpit. But ambo actually points to the fact that its primary purpose is the proclamation of the Word of God. When we say pulpit, that's more about preaching. But that's not the primary purpose. Its purpose, primarily, is to share the words that God has given us. If we go back in time and we think about uh, human history, for most of human history, only 5% of reading and uh, In the world today, we're at the highest that we've ever been for people who can read and write, and it's somewhere around 35%. That's it. For us in the United States, it's probably pretty shocking, because most of us can do those things. But if you look at the entire world, it's only about 35% that can read and write. And so when we're celebrating the Mass, which is something universal, um, if people want to know what God said in His writings, it has to be read to them because they themselves cannot read most of humanity. So in the celebration of the Mass, we have the reading of sacred scripture, and that takes place at the emblem. There's also the presider's chair, the place from which the priest is going to preside over the celebration. The priest or the uh, bishop presides over the celebration of the Mass. And so the presider's chair is usually in a prominent place. It's usually the largest of the chairs to make it obvious that that's reserved for the celebrant who is ordained to serve the people of God, ordained to lead them. If we think about what is the scariest thing in the world, some people would say death, but actually many studies show that it's public speaking. And so most people don't want to get in front of other people and talk. And it's good to have someone designated to do that for the whole community, if that's the scariest thing in the world. Um, so the presider is in the presider's chair, presiding over the celebration, using the Roman Missal, celebrating Mass in the way that the church has told us to do so. Uh, we also have the baptismal font. Traditionally, it would be near the entrance of the church, because the church building is supposed to represent the church that is the community of believers. So as we're entering into the church building, it makes sense to have the baptismal font as a sign of our entrance into the church that is the community of believers. It's also why we have the little holy water fonts in the entrances, to remind you of baptism, how we entered into the church in the first place. Our church is of a Gothic design. Gothic designs have pointed arches. Um, it's pointing us towards heaven, which is where we should be focusing. In Gothic churches, they often emphasize the stained glass windows. And because literacy was so rare in church history and in human history, stained glass windows as well as paintings would tell the stories 
of our faith so that the people who couldn't read could know about these things. And so in our church, we have lots of beautiful stained glass windows of different saints. Um, and that helps us to know how we too can imitate those saints to get to heaven. Our church building is also designed in a cross shape. You might have noticed that where the confessionals are, it's also a little bit pushed out. Those are the arms of the cross. So the main entrance is the foot of the cross. And here in the sanctuary, the elevated stair space, uh, is, is the head of the cross. So if we look at the cross there uh, with Jesus, we could see um, what I'm talking about, like where his head is, where the arms are. The building, which represents the community of believers, is in a cross shape because we are the mystical body of Christ who gave himself up on the cross. Okay, so I talked for at least 22 minutes. Um, How about I let people ask some questions? Yes. Um, good question. The priests celebrate Mass without wearing the vestments. The church we have what's called uh, lacety and validity. In order for something to be valid, there's a bare minimum that must be done. In order for something to be illicit, as in following the rules, doing things legally in the church, then you have to do everything about So if a priest were to celebrate Mass without the vestments, would it be valid? Would Jesus really come? Would the sacrifice be present? If he is doing all the right things, says the right words of Jesus from the Last Supper, if he's using bread made from wheat and wine made from grapes um, that meets the criteria of the right materials, and he says the words of Jesus, then it would be valid. It would really become Jesus. But as some people would say, if he's not like wearing the right vestments or if he's making a mockery out of the mess, then Jesus would be there, but he's not going to be happy. Um, we say that you know, kind of jokingly. Uh, we can't think of times when priests were in prison. There was a bishop, and unfortunately I forget his name, he was uh, thrown into prison by his communist country, and he would have his friends and family members smuggle to him wine and bread. And obviously when he's there in the prison cell, he doesn't have his vestments. But he would celebrate Mass anyway because he's celebrating the Mass for the benefit of all the people entrusted to his care. And he would celebrate Mass from memory because he didn't have the Roman Missile with him. Um, so he was in prison, but he, he celebrated Mass. He didn't have the vestments. Was it valid? Yes. In his circumstance, was it okay that he did that? Yes. Uh, it's okay that he celebrated Mass in that way. So he didn't have a chalice either. He would just use his hand. His hand was a chalice uh, when he celebrated Mass in his prison cell. And unfortunately, I don't remember which bishop that was. Um, so, but under ordinary circumstances, if a priest were to celebrate Mass without the right vestments, he would be doing it illicitly, not according to the rules of the church. But if he says the right things, uses the right materials, would Jesus really be present? Would it really be mass? Yes. Good question. Other questions? Yes. For how long has the church celebrated mass in the structure or format that we use today? In other words, if we have readings and then we go on to the Eucharistic prayer and the consecration, is that, when did that start in that sequence, or how long has it been going on? Great question. So, when did it start that the church celebrated Mass the way that it does? With first having the readings and then shifting over to the Eucharist. We actually see that in the same scripture. If we go to the Acts of the Apostles, as well as um, even the Gospel of Luke, uh, and hear about it in St. Paul's letters, too. The original Christians were all Jews. Uh, if we look at that, we would notice that where did they go? They go to the synagogue. What's at the synagogue? Well, the sacred scriptures. So they would go to the synagogue, they would hear about God from the Word of God, from the scriptures they had. In the time of the early Christians, they were also writing in the New Testament. St. Paul was writing in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had to eventually write their Gospels. And so uh, those letters, those Gospels, were 
repeated and shared throughout the Christian community. But before they had written those parts of the New Testament, they would use the Old Testament sacred scriptures, and they would go to synagogue, but then they would go to someone's house. And at that person's house, they would then have the Eucharist. They would have the sacrifice and the presence. So it was kind of like a two-part thing. Um, synagogue was celebrated on, on Saturday, and then the Eucharist was always celebrated on Sunday. In ancient times, the way they counted days, since they didn't have clocks that could tell them exactly when midnight was, they were based upon the sun. Um, when the sun goes down, uh, that's the new day. And that's something that you can see on most days, unless it's cloudy. But generally speaking, you have some sense that one day ends and the next day begins. So the first part of Mass would take place in the synagogue with the rest of the Jewish people. But then the Christians would go to someone's house after dark and they would have the celebration of the Eucharist. So we have the two parts. And as the Jews would notice the Christians and expel them from the synagogue, then both parts would be done together in the private homes of the Christians. Um, Christians were persecuted also by the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire uh, would try to find out their secret locations and where they would celebrate Mass. So they celebrated Mass in people's homes. They would also celebrate Mass in the catacombs, the places where they buried the dead and the ground. And so we see that from the very beginning. Actually, if you look at the story of the road to Emmaus, we see that it's the format of Mass, where the two disciples are talking to each other about what had happened to Jesus. Jesus comes to them, but they don't realize it's him. They talk about Scripture. He tells them all about the Old Testament, how it all points to him. Then they go in the house and breaks the bread. That's the celebration of the Eucharist. Then they recognize him the breaking of the bread. So we have a Mass right there in the Gospel of Luke, the road to Emmaus. We also find it in Acts of the Apostles, we also see it uh, in the letters of St. Paul. We also see it in the book of Revelations. Um, so it's that format of Scripture, then Eucharist, was there from the beginning. Good question. Other questions? Yes. The Eucharist that are in the tabernacle, they are consecrated, so then are they each mass being consecrated, or how does that work? Good question. So, the Eucharist and the tabernacle, they're already consecrated, so uh, are they re-consecrated each mass, or how does that work? Uh, the way that it works is, we acknowledge that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist and the tabernacle, but the priest is not consecrating again, it's already Jesus, and it saves Jesus until it no longer looks like bread. So, when he makes himself present, he takes what's underneath, the substance, the nature of it, and replaces it with himself, but he leaves the appearance, or the attributes, of what was already there, the same. So it still looks like bread, but now it's Jesus. And we know this by faith, we know it from sacred scripture, we know it from the early church fathers, we know it from the official teaching of the church, and to help us, because it's hard to believe in those three things, we also have evidence from the Eucharistic miracles to know that it's really him. Uh, so it's already him and it stays him until it no longer has the appearance of bread. Likewise, with the precious blood, it has the appearance of wine. As long as it looks like wine, it is still Jesus. But should the appearance go away, he's no longer present. At the celebration of Mass, we have ordinary bread. Well, bread is prepared for Mass. Uh, but of wheat. We bring it out in procession, and it's on the altar. When I'm celebrating Mass, my intention is to consecrate all of the bread in the sacred vessels on the altar. And so what I'm consecrating is just on the altar. What's already in the tabernacle is already Jesus, so I'm not consecrating it. But we reserve Jesus in the tabernacle primarily to allow us to bring Holy Communion to those who can't join us Secondarily, also, to have Jesus present with us physically so that we can come and pray in his presence whenever the church is open, uh, which is most of the time. Um, we can pray in his presence uh, and adore him and bring him out for adoration and look upon him as he look, looks upon us through the Eucharist. But we don't read it. It's already been. And then during Mass, 
we use what was consecrated at that Mass, but we also take what's already in the tabernacle and we bring that out, and we share both from the old and of the new. Uh, symbolically, it also shows a connection through all the Masses. By using hosts that were consecrated from a previous Mass, we're showing a connection to that Mass in our current Mass. That it's the one sacrifice of Christ being made present again to us now, and that these Masses are connected because there's only Good question. What happens when a host is dropped? So, because it is out of the universe, if anyone did that intentionally, that would be very bad. Uh, but typically, it happens by mistake. Uh, someone may not have set hands, or during the transfer, maybe the minister thinks that the person has it, but they don't, and then uh, Jesus falls to the ground. Uh, if Jesus lands on the ground, typically what would happen is the minister would pick it up. If it's me, I would get up and just consume it immediately, uh, and then I offer the person a different host. But if the person who is going to receive that host is willing, they still receive that host. Uh, anyone who handles the immigration may notice that sometimes small little particles can get on our fingers. And if the particles are on our fingers, we don't want to lose it because it's Jesus, the God of the universe. And so if the host falls on the ground, small Which is why um, the, the ground should be purified. Uh, and the way that we would do that is we do the best that we can. We would take the purifier, like the one stacked on the uh, chalice, dampen it with water, and then pack the spot where Jesus fell. So any particles that had fallen onto the carpet, uh, they would be picked up by the damp Good question. the early times of the Christians, when they would have their separate celebration of Eucharist, they would recall things that were specific to Jesus, and one of them was the prayer that they taught us. And so from the very beginning, our Lord's Prayer would happen typically near the celebration of the Eucharist. And any time someone would bring a communion out to the sick, for example, they would always pray the Lord's Prayer before receiving Holy Communion. Um, so there's a connection in its placement uh, with Holy Communion for that reason. I suppose someone could say, well, why not like do it before the consecration? Why not do it before the sacrifice of Christ? Um, I don't know, but, uh, but generally it is having that close connection to the Eucharist. Other questions? Oh, a few more. Okay. Uh, can you explain when the sacrifice of Mass is complete? Good question. And I explain when the sacrifice of the Mass is complete. So, um, unfortunately, I don't know that everybody agrees on that. Um, <clears throat> when we have the celebration of the Mass, we're making present the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, the giving up of His life, His death. We have that moment made present to us in the of the body and of the blood. Because what happens is the body and blood are separated. You die, right? So we're symbolically showing the death of Christ and making him truly present in the Eucharist by having these separate consecrations. Some people would argue, well, once Jesus is there and once we have his death shown, that's the end of the sacrifice. Um, others would argue that the sacrifice doesn't end at that point because... Um, because of what goes back all the way to the original first Mass, which was a transformation of the Passover meal from Exodus into the first Mass, where there are four chalices. Jesus consecrated the third one, making it his own, and then the fourth chalice was the cup that completed the sacrifice. So the Passover meal wasn't done until the fourth cup was received. So in the celebration of the Mass, um, we only have one chalice, uh, we kind of collapse all four into the one. Um, but Jesus, he says, it is finished when he receives the fourth cup 
on a cross, which was the sour wine held up to him on the sponge on the sprig of hyssop. Um, so that's the fourth cup that completed the Passover meal that became the sacrifice of the Mass. So some people would argue the sacrifice is completed when the priest himself receives. Just like how Jesus received on the cross the fourth cup and said it is finished. So different people, different opinions, but those are the two arguments on the Lord of when the sacrifice is actually Okay, so we're about five minutes over. So we're going to go ahead and close the prayer. And if you have any questions for me afterwards, you can come back and ask. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for trying to bring us together. We may go deeper into the mysteries of celebration of the Mass, the different vessels and vessels, the reasons to honor, the ways to do our work, the symbolism. We ask you to help us to have attentive memories. So that what we have learned and received during our celebration or our time together in this discussion can be retained and brought into the next time we come to Mass. We ask you to continue to bless us now and always. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Please remember we are having two more sessions at 3.30 uh, on the next following Sundays.